One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And I trust and pray that that is our purpose and one of the purposes for us gathering together here this morning, to inquire of the Lord, to inquire about the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his holy temple. Greet each one of you in Jesus' name, and and, I want to take this opportunity to thank the church for your support. Um, This month is always kind of interesting to us, being Pastor's Appreciation Month and the stuff that happens. But the gift box that the youth group gave was uh, was intriguing, and so we're opening one gift a day, and our grandchildren even got in on that one time, so that was was a lot of fun. Part of what has prompted... um, this message this morning is just a response to what we see happening on the world scene around us. Um, I will give a disclaimer. I do not claim to be a, um, an authority on eschatology, and I'm not. The purpose of this message is not to define and give definitions and times and to events that are taking place, but rather I would give more of a pr- uh, broad perspective and overview of of how I think uh, we can see it and how we can move forward in our walk with the Lord in response to. Uh, the world's scene around us today. It's real. We heard from Heather. It's real. Um, our family doctor, two and a half years ago or so, moved over to Israel. They were Jewish, he and his wife, and um, their son had been there prior for a few years. And so we're getting updates pretty much daily from them, usually not on the Sabbath day. And it's real. Um, we read it in the news, and we can distance ourselves from it, and we can decide whether we want to respond to it or not. But to the people that are there, it's a real thing. They live in Jerusalem. If I'm memory serves me, if I'm understanding correctly, in the old city, um, and the day that it it started, the when Hamas first attacked, they were it was a holy day, and they had on their on their holy days they do not. Um, no, no technology, no cell phone, no TV, no radio. They were cut off from the outside world. They didn't know what was going on until their son stopped by. And they live right next door, if, if I'm understanding correctly, to their son. And their son is a rabbi in the Israeli army. And so he, he stopped by to, to tell them what was going on. Some of her recent posts, uh, it's our doctor's wife that sends the posts, that show the reality of it is they're dealing with the the whole Palestinian and Israeli issue because they have friends who are Palestinian. Um, She spoke of a a man who has a bicycle shop and saw some Israeli children that were bored because they didn't have, um, because of the confinement and stuff they're experiencing, the streets are dead. There's hardly anybody out, and they they scarcely dare venture out. Um, She constantly refers to being... Um, sent the sirens blowing and they go to their safe place uh, is the phrase that she uses to describe that. But this Palestinian gave some bicycles to some Israeli children and got a lot of feedback from it. In fact, his shop was torched because of that. And that's the, the reality of what they're experiencing. Um, they, they're, they're concerned about America's response and they, they see the news articles and they read the news articles about the portion of the American government that is anti-Semitic and, um, 
And so it's, they, they wrestle with these things um, on a daily basis. It's real to them. <clears throat> and so as we hear these various reports, observe what's happening, you know, we find ourselves, as Larry mentioned, asking the question, is this the end times? And if you know anything about the family that I married into, you know that this is a, um, a subject that is dear to my father-in-law and my brothers-in-law and is often a subject of conversation when families get together. And just recently then, my father-in-law was talking about some of these things again and referred to Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> so we want to take a look at this chapter and see um, some things that we can learn from it. Consider that some 2,000 years ago, a small group of energetic young men had just come through a few days of fast-paced action, and there was more to come. I'm not sure. They didn't realize what they had in front of them. They and their leader were making quite a stir wherever they went. The sick and the lame were being healed. The blind were being given their sight back. And they were being followed by a multitude of people, so much so that the religious leaders of the day were heard to have said that the whole world is going after them. Can you imagine... Put yourself in their shoes, the rush of adrenaline and emotion that this small group was experiencing, the, the, the attention they were receiving, the, the power uh, that they may have been feeling, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem being hailed by the people that followed him, and we could go into the significance of that and how he was, uh, if anybody had their eyes and ears open, they, they could tell that he was declaring himself as a sacrificial lamb in that moment. And then as they moved into Jerusalem and got to the temple and saw the money changers and the, the dishonesty and corruption that was taking place there in the temple, and Jesus grabbed a hold of that situation and, and the clean house, as it were. This group was interacting with the le religious leaders. Uh, there was dialogue back and forth. They were constantly trying to trap Jesus in what he was saying. And it got to the point here in Matthew, just before Matthew 24, where they were stumped. And they walked away, shaking their heads. They didn't know what else to say. And the timing and the significance of, of all these events had all signs pointing toward Jesus becoming their new king. And these 12 young men were following after him. I think that was on their minds. In fact, we know it was on their minds because if you look in Matthew just a few chapters before we have where James and John were vying for the best spots in, the, in Jesus' kingdom. They were looking forward to deliverance from the Roman rule and the bondage they were under. And hadn't the prophets even spoken of something like this hundreds of years ago? And then we come to Matthew 24, verse 1. The Bible tells us that Jesus went out and departed from the temple. This was the last time that Jesus visited the temple on his sojourn here on earth. It could well be said in this verse, never to return again. It was his last time in the temple, as we understand from Scripture anyway. <clears throat> Parallel passages to this portion of Scripture are Mark chapter 13 and Luke chapter 21. And the Bible tells us in these... In, some of what I'm 
presenting here this morning will be a combination of those three portions of scriptures. On the way to the Mount of Olives, as they left Jerusalem, as they left the temple and made their way toward the Mount of Olives, the disciples took notice of the buildings. Matthew, I mean, sorry, Mark and Luke uh, mentioned in particular that the that the disciples mentioned the stones. And I have never been there, so I cannot picture how this might have been, what they were seeing from the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> but history tells us, Josephus writes about some of those stones that were uh, there, I would take it to be in the wall, huge, massive stones. Um, I looked at that as I was preparing for this message, and, you know, I didn't go, I, I took what I read, and, <laughs> I don't know how this works. Stones, they were white and, and strong, 50 feet long, 24 feet wide, and 16 feet thick. I don't know how in the world they moved them in those days, but these were big stones. And, and it was noteworthy. And the disciples were noting this. And then Jesus replied to that and said, Well, there's a time coming when not one stone shall remain upon another. And can you imagine the thoughts? I, if I stop and pause long enough and think about these men and and what they had experienced, you know, the three years prior with walking with Jesus and then in the days leading up to this. <clears throat> and now Jesus is saying these things like talking about the temple being destroyed, Jerusalem being destroyed, not one stone left upon another. And according to Josephus writing, this literally happened. Uh, the Roman army hated the Jews so badly that they completely overthrew all the stones and took it down right to the foundation and then plowed up the foundation and covered it up so you couldn't tell where these walls had been. Thus fulfilling Micah three twelve, where it says, Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Part of it was left standing is my understanding. There again, I have not been there to see it. It is my understanding that three towers and part of the western wall were left standing. <clears throat> Speaking of, we do anticipate still going sometime and seeing, but right now that looks a little shaky. I'm not sure. Um, hopefully things can simmer down well enough that by next year sometime uh, Rose and I can go and tour the Holy Lands. In verse 3, we see that this was a, a troubling thought to the disciples. Add to that the memory of the comments. I've alluded to this or mentioned this already. The memory of the comments that Jesus had been making that seemed to indicate that he wasn't going to be with them much longer. And now, following Jesus, as they often had done over the last three years, over the past three years, they arrived at the Mount of Olives, and there they had three questions for him. When shall these things be? What shall be the sign of Christ's coming? And what shall be the sign of the end of the world? And Jesus makes that interesting statement, response to them, said, take heed that no man deceive you. His first response was, take heed that no man deceive you. And then he goes on and gives them some signs of the times. Now, when we read this portion of scripture, and it's, it was hard to know where to stop uh, as far as the scripture reading is concerned, because the you really should go through chapter the end of chapter 24 and into chapter 25 as well, especially to the end of 24, to get um, a complete context for this.
Because if, and, and if you read that, then it, it can be a question as, is he talking about the destruction of Jerusalem or is he talking about the end time, when the end of all time? And the reality of it is he's talking about both. And we can see, we'll point out some of that uh, more a little bit later. So he's bringing, he's bringing both into this chapter. <clears throat> Let's look briefly at the signs that he gives. The signs are deception, false Christ, wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilences, earthquakes, anti-Semitism, betrayals, false prophets, abundance of lawlessness, lack of love, increased missionary work, abomination of desolations. What does that mean? Martyrdoms, increased satanic powers, surfeiting, and lethargy and procrastination. <clears throat> Verses 4 and 5 and 11 and 12, he talks about deception, false Christ in verses 23 through 26 and verse 5 as well. And there was a lot of this going on over this period of time. There was a false Christ, uh, people claiming to be Christ and that were not Christ. And maybe I'll say more about that later. <clears throat> wars and rumors of wars. And we hear that today. There's all kinds of wars and, and, and skirmishes and disagreements around the world. And sometimes I wonder if there's more than there's ever been or if it's just because of the information that, the access to information that we have. Is there actually, uh, do we just know more than we used to? Famines are prophesied. Jesus mentions famines in this. And this happened at the destruction of Jerusalem. The Roman general Titus put pressure on the food supply to Jerusalem, and the city was under intense siege for a long time, and it got really desperate. Their situation got really desperate. Verse 7 mentions, also mentions pestilences and earthquakes. Verse 9 talks about anti-Semitism, those hating them because of his name's sake. <clears throat> According to history, we're also told that Titus wanted to preserve Jerusalem and the temple and use it for idol worship. And, and in the days leading up to the, the siege and the destruction, he often sent Josephus in, repeatedly sent Josephus in to negotiate with the Jews. Now, Josephus was not a Christian, per se, and so, but it is interesting, and I have not read the book uh, from cover to cover, but there is interesting things in there. It just, it's a little bit of a challenge to read. But he had eyewitnesses' accounts, and it's, and it's fascinating to read um, from his eyewitness account how it supports and lines up with what a Scripture teaches us. Back to my comments about anti-Semitism. Titus wanted to preserve Jerusalem. Josephus was going in to negotiate with the Jews. The Jews refused to budge. And by the time that the armies were uh, commanded to, to attack, the soldiers were so enraged at the Jews that they set the temple on fire. And even after repeated commands to extinguish the fire, they refused. And the temple was utterly destroyed. And, you know, we, we can look at that as a history lesson and as a bunch of mad soldiers that, dis, that uh, disregarded their, their general. But I tend to believe that, you know, God had his hand in that because 
he was finished with the temple. He didn't need the temple anymore. Verses 11 and verse 24 talk about uh, false prophets. And as I mentioned, there was a number of false prophets that would rise up over different periods of time around this time of uh, the life of Israel in the nation of Israel. And yeah, there was one man who rose up and, and there was like 6,000 people that followed him and gathered in a cloister uh, because of this one man's false words. And all 6,000 of them lost their lives when the Romans set it on fire. And I think it's something that we need to pay attention to today. No, we don't have anything that, quite that extreme. There's been occasions in, in our history where there's been uh, cults and, and things like that. But w- we need to beware, like Jesus said. And I want to finish more with uh, this, the message with more comments on that about being aware that we don't fall for false prophets and false teaching today. Verse 15 talks about the abominations of des- abomination of desolations that was prophesied by Daniel. I think that part refers specifically to the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, the Roman army came in. Their ensigns and images were an abomination to the Jews, and they brought them into the temple and placed them over the eastern gate and sacrificed to them there. Obviously, that was before the final destruction, thus des- desecrating the temple, and then they laid it to waste completely. Verse 38, he, re- he mentions surfeiting. And so as I go through this, there's kind of a combination of things that happened to them then. And I think we need to take what um, can apply to what applies to us as well and put ourselves in this. And this in particular is one. It talks about as in, as, the days, as in verse 38, for as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, not until the day that Noah entered into the ark. There was there was indulgence um, taking place over that in that time. Surfeiting means too great an amount. I'm I have myself a little puzzled now because I'm not quite sure where I see the word surfeiting because it's not in this verse. But I think, nevertheless, in, in verse 38, we do see how, the day, how it was. Jesus warned the disciples about the days of Noah and that that's going to be one of the signs of his coming. And we can see in, our, in the life in the world that we live in today, I believe, that there is, we have plenty. Surfeiting refers to too great an amount or indulgence. It has to do with overindulgence or excess, especially with food and drink. That was a fast rundown over this list, and as we look at it, it's easy to see that most everything in the list is going on around us in the world around us. And, and then, you know, we hear things like we hear about the war in Israel, and it, this question comes to our minds, as, I, as I already mentioned. Does that mean uh, that we are in the end times now? And I don't know that for sure, although we know that each day is one day closer, Right? Or could it mean that it will get worse yet? Or have we been in the end times for 
years, because I remember as a young person, um, men like Aaron Glick, that many of you wouldn't even know who I'm talking about. Some of, I'm dating myself now. Um, often talking about us living in the end times, and now here we are today, and Jesus still hasn't come back. Even, yeah, there was others as well that, that I think had in their minds that Jesus the, the, would have returned by now, but he hasn't come back yet. So how do we reconcile all these things in our minds? That's kind of the question that I'm, I'm looking at here. I think as far as this list of signs that Jesus gave, we do well to take note and consider where we are at in these things. And while we may still have a lot of questions um, about those things, I think I want to focus next on some main things, four main things for us to focus on that we see in this passage of Scripture. And the first one is what Jesus said Take heed that no man deceive you. And I think we need to focus on that and keep that in front of us. Take heed that no man deceive you. We live in an information age, and I could stand here and give the woes of that. I'm not going to do that because it is an opportunity as well. We have an opportunity to learn. We have incredible opportunities to learn. And what are we doing with those opportunities? Are we using them for good? What rule and what guide do we do, you, do we follow in, in our quest for information, in our quest for learning, in, our quest, in the things that we take in? What rule and guide do we have for learning? Is there anything that we use to discern what we should or shouldn't take in? And there's various portions of Scripture that I could refer to. Philippians 2, verse 8 is one that has a list of things there for us to consider. 1 John 4 Verses 1 through 3, encourage us to try the spirits. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets are going out into the world. And hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. A fairly basic principle, a very basic principle that he teaches us here in trying the spirits. If there's anything out there that does not agree with the word of God, if there's anything that does not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and his suffering, death, and resurrection and ascension, then it is not of God and it is an evil spirit. We could turn to more scriptures. I won't take time to do that this morning. Try the spirits and beware. I think that's the biggest thing is to beware, to be conscious that not everything is true that is in front of us. How do we decipher what is right and what is wrong? The second thing is I think that we can expect times to become more difficult for the dedicated Christian. And again, I don't want to be a doomsdayer here, and we don't have to be afraid of that. But we've already seen a shift here in recent years and where it's, it's becoming more challenging. Um, the whole sexual revolution thing is just incredible. The wickedness and the, the uh, untruth that is being taught to our children in this 
end is unreal. And so I believe that's one area, just pointing it out, one area where we're, I think we're going to be, can't, we can anticipate some opportunities to, to stand for our faith. When we look at these things, it seems like we live in the end times. And for that, just by way of encouragement, I'll turn to Luke 21. In fact, this is, this is Luke's rendering of Matthew 24. Luke brings something out that I want to read. As far as defending our faith, Luke 21, 10 through 15. Then he said, and you could make note of this and keep this in your uh, uh, somewhere on, in front of you because it is an encouraging portion of scripture. Then he said unto them, nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Great earthquakes. I'm going to skip down through to verse 13. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Verse 14 is what I really want, and 15 is what I really want to bring out. Settle it therefore in your hearts, not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay, nor resist. God will give you the words. He will give you a way of response. He will give us the strength and courage to face the difficult times when we trust in him. The third thing I wanna, that we want to focus on is that God's word is sure. And it will come to pass in detail. Mark 13, 31 says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. <clears throat> we could take time to look into all the prophecies of Jesus Christ, of his birth, and how, he was, how that was all going to happen. It was all prophesied in the Old Testament, and each prophecy was fulfilled in minutest detail. And I often re- remember, I, could, I don't remember who the man was, but I know it happened at Peckway Church, and he was talking about three things. He, he said you, he could picture three rabbis sitting together and arguing that, well, no, but the Bible says he's going to come from Egypt. And another one could argue the point that, well, no, but he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And um, I forget the third one. I didn't, uh, this wasn't premeditated. And they could argue, and, and yet they were all right. And that's the way God's word is. We can be sure that even when it doesn't make sense, and, and, and we can, that's why I hesitate a bit to, to place, uh, get specific about times and how on the world scene and events and how it plays into prophecy. Because really our understanding of God's plan is minute and it is small. But he gives us enough that we can, he doesn't, we're not blindsided and we're not left unsuspecting, but we can prepare for, for this, for the, the end times and for his second coming. <clears throat> God's word is sure and it will come to pass in detail. Josephus' eyewitness account of the destruction of Jerusalem matches the prophecy of Jesus. And I think it's beautiful. It's a commentary to the infallacy of the word. <clears throat> Do we believe God's word even when it doesn't make sense? As I mentioned earlier, this portion of scripture refers to destruction of Jerusalem and also the second coming of Christ. 
and how do we know the difference? I think there's things like verses 30 and 31, for instance. If you look at that, it says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. That did not happen at the destruction of Jerusalem. So that is a prophetic word that is yet to be seen. <clears throat> Some of which uh, may have even been seen uh, some years ago, the dates uh, leave me at the moment. <clears throat> so why, we could ask ourselves, did God blend the two, in, or did Jesus blend the two in the same portion of Scripture? And I'm not sure if I have a good answer to that, but I believe that both events signal or brought on a major change in how the faith of a believer is lived out. The destruction of Jerusalem changed, and we saw some of that in our Sunday school lesson today, the way uh, the religion of the day was lived out. I think it was all part of, or part of the process of the, the New Testament church being born and established. <clears throat> As I referred to earlier, the Roman general Titus was not intending to destroy the temple, but it was destroyed, and I believe that God had his hand in that because he was finished with it. And there's coming a day when he's going to be finished with the earth as we know it, and it will also be destroyed. <clears throat> the fourth point I want to bring pull out of this is God will take care of his own. He is big enough. There's reason to believe from historical accounts of the destruction of Jerusalem, there's reason to believe that non, not one Christian lost his life in the destruction of Jerusalem. All were able to flee. Again, that's a historical account um, that I can't verify, but there is reason to believe that. <clears throat> in verse 13, here in chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus said, But he that shall endure until the end shall be saved. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And we can rest in that. We can, we can uh, root our faith in that. We can anchor ourselves in that. That he that shall endure to the end shall be saved. God will take care of his own. And we have stories. You have the stories abound in the history of the church of, of how God took care of his own. The martyr's mirror. The voice of the martyrs even current stories of what's going on in the world around us, how God does take care of his own, and you and I can rest our faith in that as well. Just to reiterate a few things, um, I think the call is for us to watch. We don't know the hour, we don't know the time, but we are called to watch. Verse 44 says, therefore, be ye also ready. Because he's coming when you least expect him to. To wrap this up, we can go back then to Acts chapter 1. Forty-some days after Matthew 24, verse 1. 
this same group of energetic young men, minus one, and I say the same group, I'm not sure if they were the same group. Maybe it was part of the change that was starting to take place and not real evident yet, but it, it, we saw more evidence of it later. But this same group of young men, like I say, minus one, minus Judith, Judas, were again with Jesus. <clears throat> I believe there's, there were some of their friends with them in, at this occasion as well. But again, they were with Jesus. Again, they were on the Mount of Olives. And again, Jesus is talking about leaving. And again, they anticipate that maybe now is the time when he'll set up his kingdom. But again, Jesus said, not now. It's not for them to know the times or the seasons that are in the Father's control. But one big difference. This time, Jesus said, but you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. I think that is incredible. Forty-some days before this, they were on the Mount of Olives looking down over Jerusalem with Jesus, and they said, how are we going to know the times? And he gives a whole list of signs and uh, how you know the times. And somewhere between that occasion and this occasion, they came down off the Mount of Olives, and if my... uh, The word is leaving me. Sequence of events is correct. They would have had the Last Supper. But then they ended up back in the Mount of Olives that night. And Jesus was betrayed. He was taken away. He was crucified. Somewhere between Matthew 24 and, and Acts chapter 1, we have these, this, all this stuff happening in between. But now Jesus is telling them, I'm going to turn to it. Verse 6 says, they asked him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. That's in his hands to know. No one knows. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Earlier he had told them, be not deceived. Now he tells them you're going to receive power and you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And what is one of the keys to us not being deceived? Isn't it having the Holy Spirit in our lives, being able to discern and understand the word is one of the keys to not being deceived. And I find that so, I found that so inspiring when I, when I made that connection that it wasn't long, 40 to 45 days Uh, before he had told them that you're going to be not deceived when he asked for the signs and now he's they're asking for a sign again and he says you're going to receive power after that the holy ghost has come upon you let's kneel for prayer